0: Welcome to Coffee with Catholic Workers, a podcast from and about folks involved in the Catholic Worker. I'm Theo.
1: And I'm Lydia. And we've both been active in the Catholic Worker for the past decade, and we're excited to introduce you to some of our favorite people in the movement.
0: Today we're talking to Brenna from the St. Isidore Farm in Cuba City, Wisconsin we talked to Brenna about her Catholic Worker jo- journey before discussing how the St. Isidore farm set up a co-op to handle their finances, her and her community's journey working towards decolonization, and what about the Catholic Worker brings her joy. Let's get to the interview. Uh,
1: so today we have Brenna from St. Isidore Catholic Worker Uh, here with us. Um, Brenna, thank you for being willing to join us on our podcast. Uh, Maybe could you share a little bit about yourself and um, how you got involved with The Catholic Worker?
2: Sure, thanks so much for having me. Um, Let's see, I I grew up Catholic. I was raised Catholic in Massachusetts and um, from a young age decided to or I had enough questions about um, God and religion and what I wanted to believe that I decided to pay pay pretty close attention at Mass. I was a pretty serious kid and um, I wanted to know if I were gonna join up with this Catholic religion and become confirmed in it then I wanted to know what it was that I was signing on for. And, um, so I, so I paid close attention at religious education programs and I paid close attention at mass and, um, and ended up deciding, yeah, this is, this is, this is what I want to do this. I believe, I think I believe enough in this faith, this Catholicism to continue. Um, but I was also raised, uh, white and middle-class and with all the values, the U S values that go along with that culture. Um, So I, when I went to college, I was a major, I majored in math because I was good at math and I thought I could make a lot of money that way. Um, And while I was at college, some of the friends that I made um, who were really interested in social justice, like protesting against sweatshops and and interested in U.S. foreign policy and how um, the United States government was harming other countries a lot of those friends um, taught me a lot about injustice happening in other parts of the world and how our government had a lot to do with that. Um, and those friends uh, introduced me to some classes. And it's interesting, those friends are generally, for the most part, were not Catholic um, and sometimes not even religious. So I was already, I was starting to see this dichotomy between what I did on sunday what i believed as a catholic and how um where i was putting my sort of my uh money where my mouth was so to speak uh so i was very lucky that my the end of my sophomore year a friend of mine convinced me to take a a course Something it was called something like faith and poverty or something and one of the guest speakers in that class claire schaefer duffy she and her spouse scott um, ran the St. Francis and Therese Catholic Worker in Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, she spoke for the class. I ended up interviewing her for a paper, which meant I went over to their house and visited them and learned all about the Catholic Worker. And pretty much as soon as I met them um, and asked them lots of questions about why they did what they did, why they lived how they lived, uh, why they were willing to get arrested, for protesting pe- for peace and against injustice, why they were willing to go to other countries to work with people who were nonviolently resisting oppression, um, why they were willing to take folks into their house um, who wouldn't otherwise have any place to sleep. Um, they rooted all of their answers in the gospels. And like I said, I was like really familiar with the gospels cause I paid close attention at mass. And so everything they said, they could relate back to. Well, here's what Jesus said, and so this is what we're going to do. And it um, it hit it deeply, resonated with me. I was like, yeah, that's that that is what Jesus said, and I see how you're the first people I think that I've met who've completely lived counterculturally because of what the gospel has called called of us and asked us to do. So I was pretty sold from that that moment on. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a, a quite the jump from math to the Catholic <laughs> Worker. Um, do, do you find some usefulness of that major uh, within the, the Catholic Worker movement? Um, no,
2: not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I still love math for its, its beauty. I think it's a really beautiful language, um, like a calculus and analysis. And it's just the theory is just gorgeous to me. I, I loved it. Um, but I have not found it useful in the Catholic Worker Movement, unfortunately, Um, but that's okay. Um, I ended up taking other classes in college that that were more useful for the Catholic Worker, stuff about radical economics and peace and justice, and, um, and the math is just something that I'll maybe come back to in my old age or something.
0: Well, how did you get from college class in Massachusetts to farm in Wisconsin, then? It's not a straight line uh, for everyone.
2: Of course it is. Just kidding. No, it's not. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I could probably take several hours to explain it, but I'll try to do it in just a minute or two. Um I, after meeting Scott and Claire and their four children and getting to cook meals with them and go travel to New York City to go to protests against the sanctions in Iraq with them, I just fell deeper and deeper in love with the Catholic worker and knew on a, on a real gut level that this was where I was called and this is how I wanted to live. Um, and also being... Um, A person who went to college, I had student loans. Um, Probably not as many student loans as some people might have today, but I had a good like $25,000 or something that I owed back um, to the federal government and the other various entities from whom I had borrowed money. So I I did, I volunteered with Catholic Worker after I graduated college, but I also then needed to get a job to pay my loans. I also needed to figure out a way to have insurance, because at the time, we did not have in this country the Affordable Care Act, and my family was having none of it. I For a while, I just didn't have insurance, and that was really hard for them, because I still had a younger sibling who had not yet gone to college, and so anyway, we made a deal that I would I would have a job with insurance or figure out a way to have insurance until my brother graduated from college, and then I could do whatever I wanted. Um, which I thought was a fair deal. So yeah, just kind of, I worked different jobs. I joined a large community for a while, um, living with adults with disabilities. Um, That was beautiful. And it also provided insurance. I went to Notre Dame to get my master's in international peace studies for a year. That was a way, um, that was a free program that I got actually a stipend to be part of. Um, and it also gave me insurance, <laughs> so I did various things that I thought were in line with my values, um, while my brother was in college, and then I, once he was done, I joined the self Bend Catholic Worker again, um, because I, after having been at Notre Dame, I met folks starting a Catholic Worker there, um, yeah, worked with them for a while, worked with the Catholic Peace Fellowship, trying to help, um, I met folks who were starting up the Catholic Peace Fellowship again. It was an organization that had started in the 60s, but had started with the Vietnam War, helping conscientious objectors get out of the military. And it had restarted, and we were helping folks who couldn't, who had joined the military, but who no longer believed that they could kill um, because of their Christianity. Um, we were helping them get out of the military, and that was kind of an offshoot of our Catholic worker work. Um, traveled to Palestine a number of times with the Michigan Peace Team, what was then called the Michigan Peace Team, now called Meta Peace Team, and uh, working with Palestinians who were non-violently resisting the Israeli military occupation of their land and their farms. And while I was there, I I often got asked the question like, well, what do you do at home? And my answer often felt like, well, I, I... I do activism, like things like come over here to help you protect the land that you loved. And I realized, huh, like because of my upbringing, my middle class upbringing in a suburb, there wasn't really something that I connected to and that I loved, um, that I that I was willing to risk my life to protect. Um, so, yeah, having been introduced throughout the Catholic Worker, through living in houses of hospitality to this farming aspect of the movement, I I had learned more and more about farming and thought that it was something that I might be in love with. Um, <clears throat> and after meeting Palestinians who also were so devoted to protecting their own farms and the land that they loved, I thought, well, maybe I want to check out this Catholic worker, f- the farming aspect of the Catholic worker movement. And, um, Lived for a year with Benedictine sisters in a cloistered monastery in Bethlehem, Connecticut, called Our Lady Ivergina Laudis um, to see, to give this farming thing a try and see if it was more than a dream. And it it was. I loved it. So after I, I left there, I traveled to a number of different Catholic worker farm communities and some other farm communities to see what it might be like, how I might consider starting a farm community of my own in Massachusetts. But I ended up meeting Eric in Galata, who's now my spouse. He was living at New Hope Catholic Worker Farm south of Dubuque, Iowa. And I thought, why reinvent the wheel where there's a farm that I would love to live at right there with fellow Catholic workers and a person I think I want to marry? So I moved to Iowa and we got married shortly thereafter. And yeah, I've been milking a cow every day since, for the last 12 years. We've since moved up to Wisconsin because of flooding and other things, other issues. But Eric and I now live with a family of four, just north of Dubuque, uh, Iowa, but we live in Wisconsin.
1: So what is your, your farm up in Wisconsin like? you describe it for us? Sure. Um, We named our
2: farm after St Isidore, the patron Saint of farmers. Um, So we are St Isidore Catholic Worker Farm. So Eric and I live here with Mary Kay and Peter, um, another married couple, and their two children, Micah and Claire, where we are sort of the permanent community members. And we often have other folks live with us for short or longer periods of time. And we have committed as a community, sorry, maybe I'll, yeah, physically I'll describe the farm. There's 25, we live on 25 acres. The Most of that is in pasture or hay fields for cows. We have some dairy cows, so we, we milk a cow um, and have a lot of milk here. We have some laying hens um, who provide eggs for us. Um, the cows also sometimes provide meat for us. We grow a lot of uh, vegetables and some fruit. Um, We are in the process of, we've planted quite a number of trees, several hundred trees, and we're in the process of slowly converting our lawn. When we moved in, the the farm had a a big lawn and still does, but we're slowly converting the lawn to a prairie um, to sink more carbon into the ground and to restore native habitat and avoid mowing the lawn so much. And we live by um, a covenant that we wrote, a way of life that we've agreed to live together that's based on the Catholic Worker aims and means in some ways. Um, So we've agreed to live, share things and many things in common. So we share a lot of our finances in common. We share a lot of our work in common. We share a lot of our meals together. We share life together together. Um, so we're committed to communal living. We're committed to spirituality, spirituality, um, our Christian faith, our Catholic faith is at the heart of why we're here. So we share in daily prayer together every day in the morning. Um, we're devoted to, uh, care of creation or right relationship with the earth, um, in the ways that we can. We're devoted to education. So we have a lot of educational workshops here, um. We try to do like integrated education that engages the person's mind, body, and spirit. So it's sort of like both intellectual labor and physical labor and some spiritual labor, I guess. Um, Hospitality. So we don't do the traditional kind of Catholic worker hospitality to folks on the margins since we don't live in the city. Um, But we do welcome a lot of people to come and live with us for various lengths of time. And then um, we're also committed to um, in the ways that we can, anti-racism and decolonization, like ongoing learning um, about what it means as white folks living on the land out here, um, how we can participate in dismantling white supremacists, white supremacist structures. And we do that through education and nonviolent activism. Um, yeah, that's that's our farm.
0: Could you speak a little bit more about, like, the decolonization and how that relates to your place on the land and your understanding of the land? I mean, that's a big subject, but.
2: <laughs> sure. It's definitely an on always ongoing learning. Um, it's it's. In large part, not solely, but in large part, it's tied to um, the anti-racism education that the Midwest Catholic worker began engaging with in earnest back in, oh, I'd say maybe around 2014 20 or so, the St. Louis Catholic worker community was doing a lot of education around, um, a lot of like learning and study around why their community and why the, the Catholic worker in general is so dominated by white folks, and they brought a lot of education to the rest of the Midwest Catholic Worker. And then after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, the Midwest Catholic Worker tried to go a lot deeper into anti-racism education um, in a way that we had not done at all as a movement before. Um, And so we've gone through several anti-racism trainings, and uh, that, that was one of the main impetuses for our community here at St. Isidore to look at the fact that we're an all white community living on land that was clearly um, taken through unjust means from the native folks who lived here before us. And that, that set us on a journey for really, really looking more deeply into who was who was here before us and how why are they no longer here how did that happen. Um, And like in many parts of this country that information was not actually super easily accessible. Um, So we did we had to do a lot of digging to figure that out Um, just. uh, Yeah, um, to, to, to learn more about that history we started. Hosting decolonization workshops with other Catholic workers um, to help other Catholic worker communities start thinking about these issues. Um, And then learned just a lot more about, um, yeah, the U.S. government's forced removal of who used to live on this land, which was primarily the Ho-Chunk, the Meskwaki, and the Sauk, and the Iowa, um, and how those forced removals came to be. Also, the Catholic Church's participation, strong participation in that colonization through its own running of its own operation of Native American boarding schools, which was a tactic that the U.S. government used to steal more land um, when, when they were sort of sick of um, taking land through directly killing people. They, they thought another maybe more gently gentle way or something of taking land was just to make sure that there were no native people left because they would just assimilate all the native people into white culture and stole children from their homes and force them into boarding schools. And I I'm Catholic. And so this is, I had to, I, I have to reconcile that this is part of my legacy as a Catholic person is that my church helped the U S government to eradicate, um, Native culture and um, through that a lot of there's been a lot of trauma and a lot of Native children died at, at these schools as well. Um, so we've I think a huge turning point for us was in 2015 Eric and I went to a workshop with um, many people in the Catholic Worker are familiar with the, the theologian the radical theologian Ched Myers He's written several books, including Finding the Strong Man, that have been deeply influential for many in the Catholic Worker. Well, he was doing a workshop up in Minneapolis, which is pretty close to us. So we went to it, and what we discovered there, he was partnering with um, others who lived in the Minneapolis area, including Jim Bear Jacobs, who's a member of the Stockbridge Muncie Mohican Nation, who does great tours of sacred sites in Minneapolis um, called Sacred Sites Tours. For anyone who lives anywhere near to the Minneapolis area, I strongly recommend going on one of Jim Bear Jacob's Sacred Sites Tours. Um, and <clears throat> it's through a, a organization he runs called Healing, Minnes- Healing Minnesota Stories. And it became clear to us when we participated in this workshop that um, Native folks are alive and well and continuing to resist colonization, and we live on places where um, attempted genocide of Native people happened not very long ago, That it's in our very recent history, and there is um, resistance happening, and we can join it, and we can support it. So we've been trying to do that um, as best as we can since then.
1: So with you sort of you know reoriented to this focus on on decolonization in the last few years and you've started um, some work in education um where has that sort of led you and I mean now this is what, seven years on um how has the trajectory uh shifted and where where have you sort of ended up um, with all of this work?
0: um
1: Sure well, one thing and briefly
2: that I'll mention in the last few years is um, you know, I'm really grateful that there's others in the Catholic worker movement also on this um, anti-racism and decolonization journey um, with whom we've been able to collaborate, including Michelle Nar Obed, who at the Hildegard house in Duluth, who um, hosted an annual Midwest Catholic Worker Faith and Resistance retreat in 2018. To support the Ojibwe-led resistance against the uh, the Enbridge Energy's Line 3 tar sands pipeline that was um, at the time just a proposal, but it's now it's now completed. But um, Ojibwe women, primarily and Ojibwe people in general, were resisting the construction of this pipeline um, going through their territory because it would destroy a lot of land that's sacred to them, including wild rice beds. And it would also endanger their women and girls in their community because of the man camps that would spring up during construction. So Michelle called us together to help the Ojibwe resist this pipeline. And that led to um, another group of us um, who called ourselves the Four Necessity Valve Turners. There were four of us who risked arrest and then a number of us in the group um, who were supporting us, a number of other Catholic workers, we had a beautiful community going. Um, and we we got Enbridge Energy to shut off their tar sands pipeline for the uh, for part of a day by breaking into a an emergency valve shutoff site in northern Minnesota. So part of that um, decolonization has taken the form of resistance or supporting. Uh, Native-led resistance to harmful projects that will harm their communities. Um, Some of that, some of the way decolonization has taken shape in my life also is um, as a Catholic, I've helped to um, gather other Catholics in a grassroots group that's um, now calling itself the Catholic Native American Boarding School Accountability and Healing Project. It's quite a long name, but um, it's AHP for short. Maybe one day we'll have a better, less long name. But it's AHP, and it's, um, yeah, a coalition of Catholics, both religious and lay, who are doing what we can to respond um, well to um, the harm that we have caused and what Native folks are asking from the Catholic Church. Um, to respond to the harm, the deep harm that we are, we as a church have inflicted through our operation of boarding schools. So I'm, I am an active member of that. Um, I'm part of the archives subcommittee, and we work with lots of archivists who are trying to uh, find and organize and make accessible um, any archival records that the church might still hold on Um, Native people's history in these schools, and um, archives to which Native people generally want access and really have the right to, I believe they have the right to control over those um, records because it's information that was collected about them. Um, That's a term that um, is often referred to as data sovereignty. Um, So we're working to support their right to data sovereignty. And then lastly, I currently work with the group called the Nuns and Nuns, N-O-N-E-S, um, like Catholic sisters and then people who don't necessarily affiliate with a religion, um, the Nuns and Nuns Land Justice Project. So we, we work with communities of religious sisters and other movement partners, to create land transitions rooted in both ecological and racial healing. So what that means on a practical level is um, Catholic sisters have land, and a lot of them realize that they need to make decisions about what to do with that land. As their communities age and grow much smaller, they're making decisions now about what they're going to do with the vast amounts of um, beautiful land that many of them have. And a lot a lot of them want to do really good things with it. Um, a lot of them are very attracted to the idea of putting it in an easement. And our project is trying to work with them to expand those options of not just protecting their land with a conservation easement, but to position who actually gets to steward that, that land, own that land, have access and tenure with that land. Um, given that 98% of private land in the United States is currently owned by white people. We think that sisters could play a really big role in shifting that, beginning to shift that uh, dynamic by um, maybe returning land to the Native Nation on whose land they live, um, or giving land to an um, Indigenous-led, what do you call it, land trust, or perhaps partnering with like a Black-led, farming collaborative that's doing really innovative farming methods that sink carbon into the ground and are mitigating climate change and restoring ecological health. Like maybe they could give their land to this kind of a cooperative um, or um, Black Farming Collective or something. So we're working with them to to expand expand what they're thinking of um, ways that they can do good things with their land um, so those are some of the ways that this decolonization has taken shape.
1: That's a lot you've got going on in addition to maintaining a farm with all of the work that that entails. Um, does it does it feel as busy as it sounds? Yes. Um, you know,
2: <laughs> I'm um, I'm super grateful to live in community because actually right now with this um, with my new job with the Nuns and Nuns Land Justice Project. Um, there's a lot of farm work that needs to be done right at this very moment, and I am doing almost none of it on a personal, personally, my community members are really pulling the weight for me, which, um, I often feel a twinge of guilt about, um, but one of the beautiful things about living in community is, for a long time, is, um, you know, when you've lived with people for 12 years, we we all go through ebbs and flows, and some of us hold things at different times and cover for each other in different times. So right now I feel like the rest of my community is really covering for me because they really see how much I am passionate about this work. And um, I'm really grateful that they're kind of giving me the space to do this, some of this other work. Whereas in the past I did more farm work, kind of taking a pass this fall on a lot of that.
1: I think it might be interesting Brenna to touch on how some of the finances work for your farms. I think that that's like a big thing for a lot of people interested Mm in these ideas of like starting a Catholic worker, figuring out like, how does it, how do you get land? How do you get property? What does that all look like?
2: Yeah. Eric and I, and Mary, Kay, and Peter, uh, we we have been committed for our whole time living in community, to earn um, not only below the taxable income, but below the federal poverty line um, as as Catholic workers. That was just, that's, that had been a commitment of ours. And so we we really didn't have money, um, but we were very privileged to be able to, we asked uh, Rick Mim and Mary Moody, who owned and operated New Hope Catholic Worker Farm south of Dubuque, um, To live there, and Eric's mother had uh, died before I met him. Right before I met him, and she had left him some money, and he used that money to build, um, to turn an old lean-to barn into a livable enough structure that Eric and I and Mary Kay and Peter moved in and lived at. Um, That's the structure, though, that was uh, got flooded and eventually became unlivable for the long term for our for our community and for Mary computers Peter's growing family. Uh, but so not everybody has like family money um, that they're able to build a house, use use to build a house, but um, we did. So we and we also got a start because Rick and Mary let us live there for very little expense to us. Um, and then once that flooded and We knew we needed to look for a new place. We happen to live in the Dubuque, Iowa area, where there are lots of religious community Catholic religious communities. Um, There's Franciscans, there's Trappists, there's Trappistines, there's BVMs, there's P BVMs, the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and then the Sisters of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Um, and then there's Cincinnati Dominicans, and I think they're just all over the place. So. We had been living south of Dubuque, Iowa for seven or eight years, doing this Catholic Worker Farm thing, living quite simply without, with not money saved, but um, we, we were rich in relationship with these Catholic entities of um, men and women religious who saw the way we were living and loved the way we were living, we were living. And so we reached out to these communities, and I would say it was mostly these communities who made it possible for us to buy new land. Um, this new land that we purchased was a lot of money. It was um, it was over three hundred thousand dollars, and uh, we never in a million years thought that we would ever buy anything that that expensive. Um, but we got a huge no interest loan from the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, and then we've been able to pay that off partly through um, Again, through some of the money that Eric had received when his mother had died, um, as well as different chunks of money have come in from various places, including other Catholic worker communities um, where Eric, one where Eric used to live, that have helped us buy this place. And also through part-time jobs, we um, we continue to pay down the loan. Um, so how, I mean, it's all like, we, we, we ended up turning into a, excuse me, legally forming a cooperative. It's similar in other states, um, it would be similar to an LLC, but Wisconsin is a really great state for cooperatives. So we decided to become a cooperative. And then the four of us adults are members of that cooperative and the cooperative owns the land and the house. Um, we thought that would be the best way to go about it in case we ever want if in case other community members came along, we have like bylaws and expectations laid out of how people could buy into the farm and, um, what they might expect to receive if they left. Um, it's a little bit more clearly stated financially how that ends up working. We had all lived in, had other community experiences previously. Where the finances weren't as clearly spelled out, and that sometimes led to some problems. So we wanted to be as clear as we could. Um, this time, we, because of our commitment to living, below, uh, make earning money below the federal poverty line. We kind of how much we each contribute to the common purse. So we don't we don't live total common purse. We we have our own bank accounts for things like travel and fun. But most things, um, anything really related to the house and farm, we share financially, and so we have a common pot that we put into. We divided that like how, however much people contribute to the common pot, based on how much we can earn without going over the taxable, the federal poverty line. That's what we've been doing for many years. Um, That because of my new job with Nuns and Nuns, that might end up shifting. Um, we're looking into maybe different models that could help us continue to resist war, paying for war taxes. Yeah, but that's a little complicated right now, but we're looking, we're trying hard and it's it gets a little complicated, but we're trying to do that so that we can maintain our commitment to war tax resistance, um, which for those of you out there who don't know what that means, it's you know over 50% of federal discretionary income taxes goes to the pay for war or preparations for war so we have resisted that by legally making not making enough money to have to actually legally pay for federal or state taxes though we still pay property taxes and we still pay like social security and medicare and things like that but feel free to ask more questions i feel like there's tons of financial questions out there we're still paying off our loan (laughs) it's an interest-free loan. We'll be paying that for a while, but we're really blessed that it's, it's very, um, manageable for those of
1: us, we have just part-time jobs. So sharing that kind of money, like kind of requires like a certain level of trust, um, Mm -hmm. with people, uh, in having property in common and, and common purse, um, what are some what would be sort of words of advice or things that you've learned over the years that you'd give to people who are starting to think about like okay how do we how do we make these big commitments together with other people and at the same time like how do how do we leave room open for potentially others to join um i
2: think my clearest advice although like i didn't do this (laughs) because I was like a very young and idealistic and so just thought everything would work out and we're really lucky that it for the most part has but I think that um we were really lucky that it for the most part had so we learned we learned um the more that you can spell things out and create clear expectations um the better so be as clear with expectations especially around like finances and things like that as possible. Um, and then on the flip side, like leave as much room as possible for like grace and for mercy for your community members. And, um, a big lesson, a big growing lesson for all of us has been to always trust your community members best intentions. Um, cause little things can really start to get on your nerves, especially around like Agreements about how we've said we would live, and about money. Money is a bit money is a big thing, so always trust um, your community members' best intentions. That's a really important practice. It's easier said than done, but it's like it's super. Um, I can't express how vital that it is. We also once a once a week, every Friday morning, in the context of prayer. So we pray Monday through Friday together. Um, I know you asked about money and I'm talking about prayer, but they're very interrelated to trust and all of that. On Friday mornings in the context, instead of having our normal daily reading of the gospel or, uh, and intentions and silence on Friday mornings, instead, we, we have written a, what we call the reconciliation ritual where we, um, share with one another apologies, grievances and affirmations. And that weekly, uh, opportunity to express, um, disappointment, hard feelings, um, hurt feelings, apologies, and affirmations of what, of what we love about one another has really done wonders, um, for living in community together. So I would highly recommend people who are looking to live in community to one of the very first things they do is to decide how you're going to process conflict and, um, and start implementing it right away regularly um, before things get out of control um, because they can get out of control very quickly and a lot of resentment can build up. So I would really recommend that for anyone who's thinking of sharing life together, sharing finances together. Another thing about finances is we don't have a complete common purse and I am I have so much respect for people who, who do. Um, I think that requires a ridiculous amount of trust um, and a ridiculous amount of letting go of all of the ways we've been raised in this, is if you come at all from like a middle-class society in the United States, um, it's really hard um, to give up that idea of like independence, which um, independence and mobility and autonomy, which I think autonomy in the Catholic worker community is really important to have. And so I think it's actually kind of dangerous to jump into something like common purse. Um, I think right now we've, we've lived as community, we've lived together for about 12 years. And I would say right about now is when I feel, I think I could do common, total common purse with these people. I think I'm ready now. And that's 12 years into it. Um, I think monasteries and religious communities have it right when they, there's a lot of discernment before you go in and give up your financial autonomy. Um, There's a lot of trust building that needs to happen. And I think that's super wise. So I'm really glad that we've maintained, though we share a common bank account, we also maintain our separate bank accounts. Um, Yeah, because I think it's important that you don't feel, that people don't feel trapped um, and that they can still earn money. Anyway, that's that's a lot of pieces of advice. Um, but I also have a lot of experience, so that's, that's what I would say.
0: Thanks. Lydia is asking all these tough questions about <laughs> money. Yeah. All right, Theo, do you have a fluff
2: one for me then?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. We, we can throw a softball out there. What, <laughs> what about the Catholic worker just really brings you joy lately?
2: Oh, you too. (laughs) I mean, like getting to see um, all your best friends um, is like really joyful, like gatherings, like Sugar Creek, which is the annual Midwest Catholic Worker Gathering. Um, Having like elders in the movement who I can like call upon and and ask their advice and know that they've been in this for a lot longer than me, Um, being rooted, being part of a tradition, getting, getting the paper, getting the different papers. Like we just got the New York Catholic worker paper and the LA paper and the Malloy paper all in the last week. And they're just such different expressions of a beautiful movement. And I get to like read the different articles and feel connected to all of them because um there's it's ranging from like yeah, activism to articles about death to articles about gardening, to articles about racism in the church. I mean it's yeah, it's great. There's a lot of things that bring me joy about the Catholic worker.
0: You you're expressing like all these different expressions and and I you know, taking it back to Lydia's serious questioning before you uh You mentioned that you really like, think you think it's really important to have these things spelled out when you're living communally. I'm traveling and visiting all these different Catholic workers right now. And you know, there are some that are like, we are explicitly not going to have anything written out. Everyone's going to show up when they want to, and it's all just going to happen. And I guess some of them have been doing it for decades. I don't know that it's how I'd recommend setting up a Mm. new Catholic work. Anything, but there are all these different expressions.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean the national, the like Catholic Worker as like a nation as an international movement. I mean, we have the aims and means, and then everyone chooses how to live those very differently. Um, but we have uh so I love that anarchist loose nature of like how people decide to live it out in their lives. Yeah. I'm thinking if you want to like live in long-term community with people and not be stressed out about it all the time, I would recommend having things spelled out, (laughs) but, um, maybe if if other people can do it, like not having spelled it, not having it spelled out and feel like they are maintaining really good, healthy relationships with the people they live with over years and years, then I would love to meet those people. And I, um, and I think that's fantastic. I have not met, I don't know those people yet. Um, but I think long-term community with one another requires some some expectations, spelled out expectations to help build trust. Um, but as a movement wide, um, like I can love all these communities across the country and all the different various expressions and all the different expectations and it works really well because I don't live with them. <laughs> I just get to be in community with them in the broadest sense of the word, and I love it.
1: So thinking about your experience with the movement um, as a very serious question, how, how has your Enneagram number uh, impacted your experience in the Catholic Worker?
2: Oh my goodness. We could get really deep into psychology here. Um, I'm a one and i have i have had to learn a lot because i think as a one i was really i was attracted to the catholic worker ideals and um like people living out their highest ideals and i saw um and i had a very strong sense of what it should look like to live out those ideals more or less perfectly or with a complete integrity. And so while the Catholic Worker for the most part has been a really joyful part of my life, um, yeah, it's also been hard to have very high expectations of myself and my community members and the movement um, of which I am a part. And so sometimes I feel a lot of disappointment or anger um, um, about when people aren't living up to the ideals that we claim to be, um, in service to. So I'm hoping that as I age and I'm now in middle age, uh, one of the things that I think I'm learning to let go of is like the ideal of living, living those ideals perfectly, um, and giving ourselves like some, uh, room for, grace and understanding that we're humans with limits um but how do you do that that's always a good question how do you do that um how do you balance that with uh not just totally letting yourself off the hook or like totally embracing white middle class comfort i don't know it's a it's a it's a tension for me so i would say as a one that is a tension like how do i not hold on to these ideals so stridently that I make myself and everybody else around me miserable and how to balance that with um, also not just letting go of everything, all these ideals completely. Uh,
1: Yeah. Well, thanks Brenna for being willing to uh, join us today. Are there, are there final thoughts that you have or, things about the movement that you'd like to share before we wrap things up today?
0: Um,
2: I think I've already said this, but I just want to reiterate, like being part of this Catholic worker movement, it's, uh, it's just such a beautiful expression of being part of of something bigger and being um, it's, it enables me to connect with other people who are driven by similar whether values of faith or values, political motivations, or just a desire to live um, in such a way, in such a meaningful way that creates and supports life um, in all of its forms. Uh, Yeah, I just feel really, it's just a really joyful way to live and a joyful community to be a part of. Um, I highly recommend it.
1: like to thank Brenna for sharing her time and wisdom for with us today Uh, if you'd like to learn more about some of the land justice work Brenna referenced you can visit nunsandnuns.org. that's n-u-n-s and n-o-n-e-s.org at the time of our interview with Brenna they were looking for a communications manager so if that type of position uh, which is a remote position would be interesting to you uh, feel free to reach out to them and see if that position is still available.
0: One thing that really struck me in Brenna's interview was her talking about putting her money where her mouth was so to speak in this dichotomy of what we do on Sunday and say we believe on Sundays and then what we do the rest of the week and, and that that's what really drew her to the Catholic.
1: You know, I feel like that's been a trend with uh, the people we've spoken to so far, of people holding some sort of belief or being attracted to some sort of belief or truth, however they interpret it, and then finding the Catholic worker as being that place to live it out.
0: Yeah, and so far all the folks we've talked to have found the Catholic worker in different ways, too. Uh, Julie showed up at Occupy, and Joanne had a friend who dragged her along kicking and screaming Brenna learned about it in her uh college course which was kind of uh heartening to me I feel like I've talked to hundreds of college and high school groups over the years about the Catholic worker I always wonder is it just kind of going in one ear and out the other when I'm talking to these young people but maybe one of these days I'll uh talk to the next Brenna.
1: Sure, yeah. In um, Chicago at Emmaus House, we have one community member who got started through high school and college um, exposure volunteering at the Catholic Workers. So one of these days you'll, you'll hit someone. Um, it is this piece of like there's all it's it's interesting at least so far we'll see if the trend continues of people who already are leaning towards this direction with some sort of thought process or belief and then becoming aware of the catholic worker and it sort of seems like it hits this critical point of like okay am i going to actually live into or live out my beliefs in this way that seems Right or seems to embody um, these values that I've determined that that I have. In um, in some organizing spaces, we kind of talk about it as like when people become radicalized. Um, and so, uh, it, yeah, it's interesting to hear like the radicalization of people into the movement.
0: Yeah, I think deep down in a whole lot of people. We know that the dominant system isn't great, that it's Mm. pretty violent. It isn't the best way to organize ourselves as a society. And it's hard to know what to do with that. But maybe the Catholic worker is, for some folks, just that space where it's like Peter Morin talked about a world where it's easier to be good.
1: Yeah, and it's not, it it both sometimes sounds so simple to jump into it and at the same time, it's very long and complicated journey, I'm thinking of Brenna's um, comments and reflection on sort of the trust that has to be developed and now feeling after over, A decade of living in community of like okay, maybe maybe now there would be the trust, like a deeper trust to do something um, more significant with things like shared money and. I think that yeah, it's I I appreciated this balance of both the. Value and joy that comes out of it and this recognition that. um, It is also difficult and there are these risks involved when you jump in um, to something like this.
0: I think there are also risks in living a, a normal life quote, quote unquote outside of the Catholic worker movement. and those and that might be and those are the risks inherent to how this system works too. We've seen out there in the world, you, it's very normal to trust your money to a retirement account or something like that. But then every 15 years or something like that, the stock market just crashes too. And we find all these people who have put their trust in that system and they wind up with nothing as well. And it's hard to put our trust in something different, but it's very normal to put our trust in these systems that don't have our best interests in mind. Yeah,
1: we kind of uh, discount the vulnerability we have in trusting capitalism, perhaps simply because since everybody has that shared vulnerability, we normalize it maybe.
0: I was also glad to hear about the St. Isidore folks working towards clarification of thought around decolonization. I think that that's one of Peter Morin's hugest blind spots. He can talk a whole lot about going back to the land and stuff like that, but not about land back, about who was on the land, where those people are today.
1: Yeah, decolonization, it's such a huge topic. Both sort of, I guess, in significance, but also in what it encompasses. Um, and I'm I'm really impressed that they are willing to to try to take something of this breadth and magnitude on.
0: And we're only making a start at it too. But like Dorothy Day would like to quote, "By little and by little, uh, we need to start doing it."
1: Yeah, have to start somewhere. That that piece of personalism. Um, yeah, the decolonization piece is really fascinating in thinking about both, I mean, the the whole land justice piece that Brenna is working with, and then the perceptions of who, who deserves what, and almost the sense of like how much time can pass before we sort of decide that past wrongs no longer need to be righted. Um, Almost as if like, well, if enough time goes by, it's okay that there had been injustice. Um, And that's always an interesting piece to worry about of like, what, what amount of time are we all of a sudden okay? Like, yeah, something terrible happened. And now we, since enough time passed, we no longer feel responsible for it.
0: Yeah, it's a tough question. I think we need more clarification of thought.
1: One other aspect that I felt like came out in Brenna's interview that I I appreciate about the movement, and I think this was something that Julie referenced a little bit as well, um, is the ways that living in community allows different people at different times to live into different projects that perhaps they would not be able to do on their own. Uh, Julie going... Overseas, of Brenna being able to um, do a little bit less work at the farm to be able to do the land justice work and um, the ways that uh, we can become something larger um, than our individual parts.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a risk reward thing going back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, there's risk in trusting these other people that we're in community with, but it does allow us to live in a more free way in certain ways and a more rewarding life, at least in my experience.
1: that wraps up another episode of coffee with catholic workers Uh, we'd like to thank chris from the bloomington catholic worker for help with our uh, editing and david hayes for the music
0: we hope the conversations and discussions today have been clarifying that you're encouraged to create a new world to be here to be